Rolling Dice and Taking Names is sponsored by The Broken Token, creator of high-quality gaming accessories and storage solutions. Visit them online at thebrokentoken.com. In this special tabletop showcase edition of Rolling Dice and Taking Names, the guys interview Eric Lang, the designer of The Godfather Corleone's Empire from Simon Games. This is one episode you can't refuse. Welcome to another episode of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is a special tabletop showcase episode number 121. My name is Marty. And I'm Tony. And we're going to be featuring the brand new game coming out from Simon, The Godfather, Corleone's Empire, with designer Eric Lang. It took a whole bunch of people to pull him together to come back on our show. That's right, Eric Lang. <laughs> we were able to sequester him back to the show. I mean, Eric has been on our show previously, Marty. He came on episode number 76. Mm-hmm. And what I think is one of the best rank them which is our little game show segment of anybody that we've ever had oh yes he did an outstanding job because it sure wasn't us it was all eric no it's, let's be honest yeah yeah let's say let's give credit where credit is due when eric is on the show eric shines we just sit back and bask in his glory that's right so and then he showed up on 92 he didn't learn from 76 he showed up on episode <laughs> number 92 when we talk about our Seamon adventures in atlanta so what did it take he i guess he's under contract or something <laughs> Why do I have to? Why do I have to go with those fools again? I mean, my God! It's like of all the people in tabletop showcase, you're putting me with Marty and Tony again. Why couldn't I go and talk to Rodney or Jamie or somebody? If you haven't gone and checked out the other tabletop showcase shows, um, I mean, if you haven't seen Rodney try to play it, I'm sure he did a great job. No, he no, he doesn't try to play it. He shows you how to play it. Okay, I'll give him that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> or heard Jamie talk about it over there at the Secret Cabal. He gives a theme dissection, so I think he's going to be educating everybody. Thank you for coming and checking this out and listening to us talk with Eric about the game. We will no doubt learn so much from him and what his thought process was behind this game. Yeah, so without further ado, let's bring in Eric Lang, the designer of The Godfather. I almost guarantee that for most of the people that are listening to this podcast, you're gamers. I can also almost guarantee that all those people who are listening to this show that are gamers have probably played a game from this man that we're getting ready to talk to. We are so excited tonight to talk to the designer of the game, The Godfather from Simon Games, the director of game design, Eric Lane. Eric, welcome back to the show. Hi. <laughs> hi. Is that is that the best you got? That's it. I give, I give him all those accolades and it was just hi. Yeah, you you took all the pomp from the room, man. Like I'm all I'm I'm just hi. Hi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I've I've got to ask, Eric. We we know that you're in Singapore right now and I, I got to know, it's been driving me, when I heard this, I'm like, why is the man heading to Singapore, Canada to Singapore? It's almost exactly the opposite side of the world. It is. Uh, I'm moving here because uh, the, the 
the head office of Singapore is actually, sorry, the head office of Singapore, the head <laughs> office of Seamon uh, is in Singapore. And so uh, the, the CEO, Chern and lives there. And I will be, uh, I'll be reporting to him here out of the office here. And uh, some of the other directors will be coming out here as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Isn't a lot of the designers that you work with, like back over here, like in South America and over in, in Europe? That's right. Yeah. The development office is in Brazil. Uh, it's in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It is so that's the development office. That's where all games that are designed, regardless of where they're designed, will get processed through the Brazil office. And that's my team over there. But I don't report to them, I report to the CEO. So <laughs> I will be traveling often to Brazil, but they report to me there. And we just I mean, I'm so used to running a team virtually that we do I mean, we call each other every day and we have meetings every day. It's pretty much as if we're in the same office. God bless the internet. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> we we have meetings in our offices, and I don't think anybody goes to a room anymore. It's all calls, video conference, all of that. No one goes to a room anymore. It's great. Exactly right. And no pants. Remember that. Oh, yeah. The, uh, and we've all verified none of us are wearing pants right now, so we're good. That's right. The tyranny of pants is over. <laughs> and I was just getting over the tyranny of a tie, and now it's like going downhill so fast. Casual Day in the Office has gone from no tie to no pants. I, I can live with this. <laughs> That's right. So, Eric, we're having you on the show because this is the premiere week on Tabletop Showcase, where we get to talk to you, the designer of the Godfather. Now, Eric, I've I've got to ask. This is going to be the first question. I'm not sure how long ago you started this game, and you and you can let us know that. But here's the thing: Did you say, you know what? I want to design a game based on the movie The Godfather, or were you approached by a company that had that license and said, Eric, would you be interested in designing a game based on The Godfather? Uh, well, so you want to hear a story? Yes, please, please, please. All right, I'll tell you a story. So I've actually, I told the story often enough, I got this re refined down to a nub. <laughs> so uh, a couple of years ago, a couple, actually almost to the year, a couple of years ago, um, we were coming back from CMON Expo. Uh, where, I mean, I just saw you there last month, right? Yeah, exactly. Usually what happens is after CMON Expo, I go down to uh, Atlanta with uh, some of the team because the Brazilians will go down there and we all meet in Atlanta and we, and, and we just do like a summit, right? We work on some stuff. And I mean, even though I was a freelancer at the time, I was still very deeply involved with Simon. I was working on a, a bunch of projects with them. So I, this was about the period where I was, I had two, I, the, I was wrapping up Blood Rage and um, for Kickstarter and I was working on the others at this, at that time. And I was also doing a little bit of side design on Bloodborne. So I was, my plate was full. Executive producer, David Preddy, uh, who is like the, He's the creative director at Simon right now. Uh, at the time, he was a, uh, I don't know what we called him. We just called him super producer at the time. He and I have worked together for many years, and he knows me very well. He knows exactly how to push my buttons and how to get uh, in the good way and the, uh, the other way. He comes into the office, and he's got this look on his face where I know that look. And I'm like, I'm like dude, no. No more games. No way. <laughs> no chance. Like, look at this. I'm surrounded by cardboard boxes of games. This that are due in like the next year and a half. No way. And so he like gives me this little wry smile. goes like, well, all right. I just wanted to let you know that we have the rights to the Godfather. And I was wondering which designer you would recommend for me to have work on this. <laughs> That's a setup. Now he knows straight up that Godfather is one of my top three movies of all time. 
And I'm like, oh, dude, you have the Godfather? <laughs> like, I'm not sleeping tonight. Uh, but of course, nobody else is going to design this. No way. I, I was like, just just give it over. Give it over. Despite the fact that I was working on all this other stuff, I was like, uh, I'm absolutely going to do this. So they asked me to do a um, presentation for uh, for the licensor for Paramount. Like, what would you do with this game? Uh, take some time to think about it. I'm like, dude, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm going to go to sleep, and I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to know what I want to make. With stuff that I that I've loved for a long, long time, I pretty much go by my gut on this. Like I know back in back in the brain there somewhere is I've been thinking about a game, I just didn't even know it. Um sure enough, I mean I didn't really sleep. I basically stayed up all night and staring at the ceiling, and the next morning I had the outline of the game written up. It wasn't the first outline was not that close to what we have now, but the second outline after uh, after I realized that the first one was just a little too uh, sprawly, mm-hmm. Blood Rage had just come out. Like, was it? Sorry, it was just about to launch, and I was so happy with how streamlined it was. I was like, I'm going to do a game that's, I want to do a game that's that streamlined, uh, that streamlined, that straightforward, but with all that depth. So then I did my the first real prototype, and that actually is not a million miles away from uh, what we see on the table now. This is one of the smoothest games I've ever done. From the first prototype until now, I would say. If, if you're not looking at it with a really detail-oriented eye, you would say, oh, you didn't change that much. Of course, the developers, yeah, we changed everything. But it doesn't always end up that way. But this game was smooth as butter. Smooth as rocky butter with spikes in it. I know you said you took it. You didn't have to threaten him, like, sleeping with the fishes. No horse heads were uh, exposed at this time or anything <laughs> like that. It was just straight. You took it. You didn't have to threaten him. Well, no, 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 no. He knew he knew I was going to say yes. Uh-huh. Right, he knew that. Even though I was working on all this other stuff, they had the Godfather license. I was like, uh, orig- originally, I was going to say, all right, I'll wait until all my other stuff is done. But there was no way. There's like once I heard we had that license, there's the of course, like I was going to work on it. And sure enough, like 24 hours later, I had something. So he made you an offer you couldn't refuse. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe you actually did that. And he left the gun and took the cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's the thing, Eric. I will say this. Uh, before I played the game, before I took the shriek rap off the game, I went back and watched Godfather again. Because I know Good for uh, you. You, and, you got you showed me the prototype at Simon Expo in 2016. Right. With the Chaos Ball figures, right? With the Chaos Ball figures. <laughs> That's right. So I kind of knew how it worked. And I remember you said that you're going to be, be playing through the acts of the movie. So I wanted to make sure to refresh myself with how that movie ran and the characters of the movie and everything. So I rewatched the movie and then I went and and, and uh, played the game. Now, you said you knew exactly almost what you wanted to do. So you you kind of already knew the mechanics that you wanted, the the card management, the the worker placement type thing, the area control was like, boom, I'm going to mix all these type of different mechanics into this one game. Boy, I'd love to say that. Yes, but no, that's not true. So <laughs> I knew, I mean, usually when I'm designing a game, I'm not designing, I, it's not like I go, oh, I have the theme. Now let's go through BGG and find out what mechanics I want, right? I, I, I just, I don't think like that. I generally go for a vibe. In my head, I'm picturing a group of players playing at a table. Uh, what components are they playing with? How are they interacting with each other? What kind of conversations are they having? What kind of arguments are they having? And what kind of decisions are they making? And what kind of moments are happening? So generally, I'm designing for, I'm designing for moments, this is going to sound a little new agey, but you know, sometimes sit back, close my eyes and picture what's going on. Mm-hmm. Think of those cool moments. And so I was thinking, yeah, like, oh yeah, of course. Like we're fighting for a turf and at some point somebody's going, 
one player's going like, oh, yeah, Nora, you take Upper West Side and let's all handle Brooklyn. And uh, Hey, dude, if you, you shake down this business, I'm putting a car bomb here next turn, right? But those type of, those type of moments I had in my head, mm-hmm. exactly how I was going to get there, that was, I mean, that was the design process. I knew almost right away that, I mean, the game was going to be about money laundering, right? Because it's, it's, it's the Godfather game. And of course, with every licensed game I do, I also knew that it has to stand on its own as a, like a love letter to the license, but also has to expose license to people who haven't actually seen it. So it had to be playable to people who hadn't seen the Godfather. Now, luckily, I mean, Godfather is the seminal mafia movie, right? So like anybody who does who hasn't seen the movie, they know the genre intuitively. Anybody who's ever watched a movie in their life or The Simpsons or like any parody in their life, they know the mafia tropes because The Godfather invented them all. So on one level, I was going, I was designing for tropes. And then the, on, then I went back and did more research and, and went for authenticity. So by the way, I, did, I mean, I watched The Godfather like a million times, but I hadn't seen it in a few years. And I made sure to work design the game without going back to watch the movie. So I wanted to make sure I had most of the prototype going just off of memory. Mm-hmm. After I knew it was fun, after I knew everything was working, then I went back and rewatched the movie and came back and uh, worked on it. I do that a lot with a lot of licenses I work on. When I first heard of this, and Marty, you know, when we saw you last year, we were talking about it, and I was like, "So this is going to be a strong." area control game because that's what i picture I, when i think of the godfather you know trying to control the various boroughs of new york did area control enter your mind at all or did you just say nope these moments are going to be this working together uh, with the family i knew the worker placement part came very early one of the core things that you're doing is you're shaking down your own all, all the businesses that are working for you shake them down for extra money you threaten them that is your mo mm-hmm. right and i knew so at that point uh, it was really clear to me quickly, like, oh, yeah, it's I put a thug in a business. I shake it down. Once it's been shaken down, nobody else is going to get anything out of it. That's worker placement. I know how that works. Right. I'm, I'm a fan of worker placement, the mechanic, but I'm not really that – I'm a theme guy, right? Like, so I would never set out and go, I want to make a worker placement game, but I would use it if it was – if I could justify it in theme. So in this case, it worked. The area control thing actually did come later. Uh, I was, I had a couple, the thing that changed the most about the game, I remember early versions I had, I, I, I had more complex systems around uh, people gunning each other down. That used to be like, a, instead of having that in the jobs, that was actually, I had mechanics for it that anybody could do. There was a little bit of bluff. I, I remember I had little gun tokens and a little screen, like, all right, where am I going to incite violence? And it worked fine, but it was a little clunky. I, I don't know, a couple months in. Uh, I realized that, you know, not every family always uses violence. So when I realized that everything could be consolidated down to doing jobs for the Don, and you choose what you want to do. So you choose whether you want to be violent or whether you want to be manipulative in the background, whether you want to be dealing with money, whether you want to be straight. That was when everything came together. Turf War actually came last after I, I was trying to put the game together. And I was like, wow, this is really streamlined, really simple. And then at one point, I think I remember, I'm not entirely sure, but I was, I was playing the game by myself, which I do quite often after a play test. At the end of it, I was like, I left the game on the table um, and I went to bed. Uh, and then I came up the next morning, I'm like, everything's still here. I'm like, do you know that I have no turf war in this game? Turf war is like the foundation of mafia games. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we already placed all these guys on a map. 
I should be controlling turf. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, within like 10 minutes, everything, just the rest of it just came together. And it was an elegant way of doing the turf war. I mean, you're paying, and I love how it goes into play with paying the respects. Right. Yeah. That, so that was what, that's what did it. I generally always try to go for the simplest expression of an idea, if at all possible. Um, of course, you know, like during brainstorm, you, you think about a whole bunch of stuff and most of it is, sounds interesting, but it's actually uh, not usable. And like, oh, yeah, of course, there's a million different ways I could have simulated it. At the end of the day, it's all about exactly that. It was it was all about, well, uh, I, Turf War is going to give you cool bonuses at the end because that's worker placement is very tactical. It's what you do, what's you, what you need in the now. But Turf War is strategic. Which turfs I need to control also pull. That's another factor that weighs on my decision to where I place my figures. Now the game is a lot deeper. Mm-hmm. Do I do I place just for what I want right now in this moment, or do I need to make sure that I'm controlling the right turf for later? Even for games about points, which is, I mean, essentially what this game is, right? I know it's about money, but it, money is points. I always try to make sure that as you're getting points, you're doing stuff that's fun, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, rather than just going for m- more money at the end of the uh, at the end of the game, I was like, well, what is the immediate benefit of turf? And of course, that that made immediate sense. Like, just I saw on the board, like, oh, of course, future players that come in here to take my business, they have to, I get a little piece of it. I think it's really interesting, too, that you, you talked about a second ago that uh, you're talking about placing these figures and the workers and these families. But you said you designed this game pretty much before you went back and watched the movie. That's mm-hmm. one thing that's nice about this game, because after I watched the movie and sat down and played the game, I realized I didn't have to watch the movie at all. You aren't playing one of the main characters in this movie, you don't have to know who Sonny is or, you know, any of the, the major characters. All you're playing is part of these families that are basically working for the Don. And I think that was brilliant because, like you said, you didn't want to have to tie it so that you have to understand what goes on in The Godfather. Even though you're playing through acts of the movie, that's just kind of your round markers. Absolutely. Well, also from a storytelling perspective, the first Godfather is is Vito Corleone's story, right? It, it transitions from Vito to... Um, to Sonny, uh, to Sonny. Michael. Michael. <laughs> Sorry, that's the Sonny. Spoiler alert, anybody who's watching, it doesn't go to Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it says, I think it says it right on the board. Yeah, uh, yes, it does. That, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, sorry, it transitions from Vito to Michael. And I, I want to make sure those, of course, like if it's a multiplayer game, like no, no one player can play Vito Corleone. No one player can play Michael or Sonny. You should you should play the other families, and remember that the backdrop that the all of the pressure on Vito in the movie came from the other families, mm-hmm. right? That's uh, in the the big the big plot twist in Act Three is like when they decide that they're it's okay to start dealing in uh, narcotics. That was all pressure. It was all pressure from outside. He didn't want to do it himself, and I want players to represent that external force and i love how the narcotics in the game are wild cards so subtly speaking i want the game to progress and have an arc right Mm -hmm. Uh, as i do with all big box games but the game keeps ramping up and ramping up and getting more powerful and then when drugs come into the game there was a part of me that wanted to go well you know i mean this is the most dangerous illegal stuff that you can do like it should feel like a rush when you get it and you know, being a wild resource is the simplest expression of that. When they show up and you get drugs, you're like, yeah, I got drugs. And you don't have to learn a whole bunch of new rules. It's just like, it's everything I already knew, but all in one package. That's great. That was one of the things actually that never changed. Uh, and when drugs came in, uh, 
I never explore any other mechanic. Was, of course, they are wild resources. That's it. Yeah. And in fact, I love the way you introduce these. I mean, for anybody who wants to, you can go to tabletopshowcase.com and check out some of the uh, previous videos from the uh, other contributors. The the narcotics don't come in until later in the game, just like in the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the first couple, they aren't even in there. It's, it's the last couple rounds when the new buildings come out onto the board where your workers can go that can actually generate a nor- narcotics resource. And like I said, if you want to go see how the game is played, you'll see that these resources that are accumulated over the course of the game is used for the purpose of completing jobs, which will give you benefits and additional cash to go into your hand. And, and Eric, this is the one thing I take from this game that's very unique is this hand size. Now we're used to playing games with hand size, but this one is brutal because over the course of a round, you're going to collect a lot of different cards in your hand from cash to jobs to resources. But at the end of an act, you have to discard down. You either got to do that by uh, completing jobs and get rid of those resources or by taking that money that you're trying to launder and stick them into that suitcase. And that's very important. It's the money in the suitcase that's in, that's important to you because at the end of the round, it's like you got to give your dues back to the Don, but you want to scuff a little bit off the top. And so there's this great balance of, of making sure that you can activate abilities on the board to stick money into the suitcase so that you aren't stuck at the end of the round with a handful of cards that you're just going to throw away. Absolutely. And, and it's tuned tightly enough that very seldom will nobody have to throw cards away. Like it's the competition is vicious. And if you're not, um, there aren't enough places for everybody to to launder money in this, uh, to take suitcase actions. Um, even, even in the best of board setups. So you basically are going to have to choose whether you're just going to widen your options and get everything ready for next act. Um, or just be concentrated on being real, real efficient, but then you have to start all over again. The next act. Or, of course, leave yourself home to extortion by having put so much money in your suitcase to start with. The brutal extortion card. <laughs> yep. So, so the suitcase, the suitcase idea was there from the very beginning, although, so I was, I mean, my prototype, I was using envelopes. Uh, envelopes is a, sort of a metaphorical suitcase, so I could I hide my money in a little manila envelope and then bid out of that manila envelope. I thought that'd be cool. But I remember I was going through the toy store, and I remember this, um, uh, the toy store, sorry the the uh the pharmacy and i remember altoids <laughs> yep i was gonna say it looks like an altoids case right on and i was like this is a suitcase mm-hmm. this is obviously a suitcase it has a lid in it and it was much e- it, like the the mineral envelope made the game a little bit too fiddly as soon as the as soon as i started putting money in altoids like this is it and then i actually even got to the point where i called the game on my Twitter handle, I call it Project Suitcase. Uh, that's my code name for it. Because I knew I would need to have suitcases. And that was actually a subtle uh, manipulation for my producer uh, to make sure that I'm like, no, no, dude, this the game is called Project Suitcase. It has to have suitcases. Even though they're expensive, they've got to go in the, in the box. I really enjoy is the fact that all the cards have the same back. So even right. though people are seeing what you're discarding, they don't know what's in your hand. They So they don't know where you're going to go on the board in that next round. And on top of that, if mm-hmm. you could also comment on the fact there's only four rounds. Was there always four rounds? Uh, I mean, no, I don't think so. I actually think there were three acts originally because, I mean, most all, all movies, uh, Hollywood movies are written for three acts. Then when I went back and rewatched the movie, I was like, this is actually – this actually reads more like a, it is like a novel. Of course, the movie is based on a novel. This feels like two plays back to back, which is where I got four acts from. That felt a lot more natural. 
And the game, I remember when I was doing three acts, the game was running a little bit. Uh, I, I had I ramped everything too fast. The option creep came in really, really early, and there was too much stuff, too many things to figure out, and the game dragged a little bit too much. So by extending out to four acts, I could introduce more complexity a little bit more organically and a little slowly, a little more slowly, and gave more gave people more time to enjoy all the new stuff that they picked up from last game, uh, which is the ally cards, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, those I wanted to make sure that people had more time to pick to enjoy playing with these cool allies that they got that they bought. So having three of them playing over four rounds is better than for um, bidding for them twice over three rounds. Um, but I was always aiming for about 90 minutes. Now, when I play this with my wife and our friends, they're not heavy board gamers. And I introduced them to them and I said, you believe it or not, guys, you will pick up on this very quickly. They don't like a lot of text on their cards. They're more the visual. Kudos to the design. For me to be able to explain very quickly, this is how you complete jobs. That's how you do it. This is what all the icons are. They immediately picked up on it. But to your credit, sir, they said, yes, this is simplistic in nature, but the strategy, this thing is full of strategy, full of it. And I was like, you're you're right, guys. And amazing. Well, thanks, Tony. I mean, I, I was going for that. I, of course, um, you were. <laughs> I knew, but but I mean, for non-gamers, they immediately well, picked well, up. Well, thanks for recognizing what I was trying to do, Tony. Well, I mean, so I mean, I mean, I'm I'm I am a little. I'm going to admit, I'm a little surprised when I hear people say they can play it with non-gamers. That um, I'll admit that. I mean, to me, this is a core market game, and I'm always, of course, I'm happy when, uh, when when people are able to to play it with, with casual gamers. I I could expect. I wouldn't expect a whole table full of non-gamers to introduce it to each other. And they'd probably have a little trouble with it. But yeah, mixed company, like some ga- um, gamers with their with non-gamer friends would, probably would be able to pick it up. And the uh, because the game is so heavily inspired by the story, I wanted to make sure... I was very, very fussy with the UI, with the user interface, and how information is presented. And the reason why that the why I have these little tracks and why the why the little police car is running there. It's not just me being OCD. It's that it, I wanted to, to flow. And I actually, um, I spent a lot of time in uh, digital games, right? I've been mm-hmm. designing uh, trading card games and MMOs and Facebook games for many, many years. And I took a lot of learnings from how they do their instructional design, which is fantastic, right? That's it. You just jump right into the game and you learn just by following the rules of the game, right? And it unlocks little pieces of complexity bit by bit. And Godfather works like that. If you just, when I, when I demo the game, I, I just tell people, all right, I'm just going to jump in. And I'm going to explain to you, I'm going to move this car from bit to bit and explain the phase that we get to it. I'm not even going to tell you what happens. Like, I don't even tell people about allies. I don't even tell them about turf war until we get there. So they only have to learn the game piece of, piece at a time they have that fun move on to the next thing have that fun and then they see how it all ties together i, I so i did spend a lot of time on that um i i, I didn't know that did not come overnight that was that was the result of many 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 hours of refining i taught a game like eric lang i'm so excited <laughs> <laughs> what i love about the the good euro games has multiple paths to victory multiple ways to get victory points and even though we said mm-hmm. early uh in the in the show was that Money is basically victory points, which is true, but it's not the only way to generate money is not necessarily putting money into the suitcase. Mm-hmm. You have other ways to generate uh, money, which two of them are 
completing jobs. The more of a particular job that you uh, uh, complete, if you have the most at the end, you're going to get was additional uh, $5. Mm -hmm. Thematically, it's like, hey, if you want to do a bunch of fighting, well, then you can do this particular color job, which I believe is red. You get a lot of those, then you're going to get a bonus five points at the end. But it's also the area control because at the end of each round, whoever has the most figures in an area gets to put one of their control markers on there. At the very end, then you see who has the most control markers in each area, which generates another five bucks. So there's multiple paths to generating cash, which will affect your strategy over the course of the game, which is what you look for in a good euro. Right. Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of the euro discipline. Right. So uh, when people tell me, you know, I like euro games, I think absolutely I do. But to me, euro games are about what make what I love about them is the fact that they're they're disciplined. Like they go for the simplest expression of a deep strategic engine. That's all. That's the only thing I think of when I think Euros. So uh, remember that games like, you know, uh, Tigris and Euphrates and El Grande, and um, I don't remember the English name for it, but uh, Adolf Reflected, which is another uh, crossover game. These are all nasty confrontational games, but they're Euros. I do consider Godfather Euro, but I'm sure the market won't. I mean, it's got car bombs going off and extortion. You're gunning people down to go the river, but you do it in a disciplined way with a very limited, with a very small uh, streamlined rule set. Yeah, but even though it's Euro, and a lot of people think Euros are dry lack of theme, the theme is very much heavy in this game. And I think you've done a, a fantastic job of doing that too, because uh, prime example, you can go in and there are jobs that you can do where you can kill people, like uh, like the car bomb. And when you kill people, they're floating with the fishes because in the rules, you're actually supposed to put them face down, floating in the river. Now, granted, at the end of the round, you'll get those guys back. But thematically, you blew them up and you threw them into the river. Right. And which, I mean, that's function, right? Form follows function in this case because you have to, you, you, they don't get them back. They can't place them again that round and you pull them off the map so they no longer count toward uh, muscle as turf, uh, as muscle for the turf war. So you got to put them somewhere. I'm like, well, of course you put them in the river. You just put them face down the river. And the funny thing is, I didn't even write that rule. I didn't even explain that rule. The first time I played it and I, was, and I wrote down, because um, I, I do this a lot when I'm testing um, when I'm testing game text. Sometimes I write I write stuff down. I don't tell people the rules, mm-hmm. and I just wrote the the the, um, the uh, drive by shooting. Right. The, I mean that card. I think the wording on that card has survived since its very first prototype, exactly as it is. Right. Just gun down one enemy figure from two different players. And I just gave them the card. I didn't ever explain it. And like gun them down. Like uh, okay, well, what happens? I'm like they're dead. All right, and they just threw them in the river, <laughs> right? Like, it just that was just it was natural, and that's what I like about that. I love rules that if they either come naturally to a player, or once you explain them once, you never have to explain them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, and I went back to the you know the non gamer group. They never felt like that gunning down or blowing people up. They they hate that mean take that type of game. They completely. Mm-hmm got that strategy of no one's being mean here it's all about getting control and getting those ability to manage that turf and and it was fluid if if, if they grasped it that's why when you say you didn't you don't expect it from the non-gamers it was so well presented to them and they understood floating with the fishes they understood it now floating so you got me doing it swimming swimming with the fishes (laughs) swimming with the fishes you don't deprive people economically and you don't uh, deprive them 
but when you when you shoot somebody down in the game, they've already done their action for the turn. Yep. So they've already gone in and shaken down the thing. So you're not denying them the ability to shake down new stuff. I already did my thing. What you are doing is you're denying them turf. Mm-hmm. So you are denying them points, but you're not denying them the fun thing that that they want to do. They've already did the fun thing. So that's one of the um, that's one of the subtle tricks I use to like be able to put violence in the game that doesn't necessarily hurt too badly psychologically. But it also helps them later. I mean, if you're playing, you're like, wait, if I gun that guy down, then I can take that spot as well. Maybe. Right. There's, yeah, there's, that's right. There's two reasons to gun people down, right? There's one, one of them is so that you can take the place later and you can, uh, you can control that to a degree because those family members that go in this little circle spaces that influence regions, if everybody else is taking spots first, then you hold back and you wait until everybody else has placed their their family member, then you just hold on. You you have you can place them whenever you want. Then you can gun them down and have your free reign whatever you want. The other reason, of course, is to uh, change the uh, muscle math. <laughs> I can't believe I said that in real life, but but <laughs> like, but you change the like you change the math for every uh, for any region. So if I, if I want to be controlling this region, I can gun down one of your guys to make sure that I'm dominating it, so I get the turf uh, the the control token. So uh, there's multiple reasons to do it. And very often, like I've I've had people organically say to each other, like, "Oh, sorry, it's cost of doing business," right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's to me, that was a the perfect thematic conversation for the game. You had a moment right there. That's right. <laughs> you know, one thing I like about Euros too is variability, and this game for sure has that because the buildings will come out randomly each round, but also there's a huge stack of allies for each act. So every time you play this game, you're going to have a different combination of buildings on different areas and different allies in play, which will keep people coming back to the table over and over again. So well done on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big replay guy. I like it as natural as possible too. So like I try not to do it too, too artificially. I mean, one of my favorite ways to do replay is just to design more components than can fit in a single game. Even if you take the exact same set of buildings, but you shuffle their order around, you end up with different pairings. So every region in the game has a pair of mm-hmm. has a pair of buildings rather than one, and that's uh, for a reason. So that the combination of the the, the pairing combination tells you where uh, it concentrates different resources in different uh, parts of the map in different games, mm-hmm. right? So, like for example, if the if the uh, if one of the the new job buildings comes up in the same turf as uh, in wall street right as the current job building then that area is going to be hotly contested when people run out of job cards but not before and the areas around that will have that happen of course depending on how the other resources come out if they come out on in queens and brooklyn then you end up with a really cool possible situation of a single player being able to set up a shakedown because they get all three resources in one shot. Otherwise, it doesn't. And that contextually changes the interaction every game. And, and I know we talked about it being, you know, victory points, but Marty, that's one thing everybody knows. I always say, oh, whoever wants to get the most victory points, it's they won. Amazing. No, not here, people. You're not playing for victory points. You're trying to, <laughs> you're trying to laundry some money. It's clean money. That's the key, That's right. right? It's clean money, not the money in your hand. And it's and it's a secret, right? Because once, I mean, uh, one thing I like to do like about this is when you take some money and you put it into your suitcase, you have to announce, this is going to my suitcase. So you, there is some 
there is some uh, uh, known public knowledge there, but it kind of it's kind of hard to keep track of over time. Yeah. You really don't know who's going to win the game until the very end, unless you've been really good at counting of who has what and how many jobs have been completed. The only thing you really see on the board is who's going to win majority in each of the areas. Right on that. There's a very much of an element of surprise as you opened up that suitcase and start counting up jobs and money, which is really cool too. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not necessarily a big fan of games that artificially that artificially bring rubber band players so that no matter what you do, you'll always have a, you'll always do well. Cause then the more that happens, your decisions don't really matter that much. Right. But I do like making sure that players feel like they have a chance, right. That there's a, sh- that they feel like they have a shot. As long as they didn't play horribly, horribly, horribly. But the way that the game, this game worked, I, I did spend a lot of time tuning the numbers on this. But the, the thing I actually wanted, the psychological trick I wanted for this game was I actually want everybody to feel like they're losing all the time. Because you're, <laughs> yes. because you're, you're putting money in your suitcase. You have to spend the money out of your suitcase to get new allies. And you know you have to get them. So you're putting all this work in. You're getting the money in your suitcase and you're losing it. And you're like, how could I possibly be winning? I'm just losing money all the time. I'm bleeding money. And that puts you sort of in the mindset of these mafia bosses. These guys are millionaires, multi, multi millionaires, but they don't feel like they're rich. They always feel like they're just barely scraping by. And I, th- I thought that was kind of cool. I think it's a solid set of mechanics. I did it for thematic reasons. The ally side of it, when you're having to give up that money, those points, how much is it worth to you? Because mm-hmm. some of those allies are pretty darn sweet. That police chief, I showed Marty just how powerful he can be in, in a game. <sighs> And, and yeah. uh, but also allies take up spots in your card. I mean, in your hand oh, yeah. too. That's another cost. Oh, exactly. So if you win, if you're always winning allies every round, then yes, you are uh, starting with a deficit of three cards uh, compared to your uh, your opponents. But they're really strong. Mm-hmm. Why are there no four dollars? <laughs> so, like I said, I, w- this game was tuned very, very carefully. Yeah. Um, and I spent a lot of time tuning it even before it went to development. And then our development team spent even more time. And like the, the key, one of the keys to this game is that you cannot make change, right? That you cannot make change. And so that, so the difference between getting a single $2 bill or getting two $1 bills matters because it's a, how many actions does it take for me to get that money in the suitcase, right? So two $1 is worse than $2, except for the case of the extortion class of cards, so I wanted to make sure that people are obsessively counting their bills, obsessively counting stuff. So if you have bills one, two, three, four, and five, you might as well just make change. The original version of this game only had my uh, only had ones, twos, and fives. I had to put threes in there just to add the to add exactly the amount of granularity we needed. Oh, sorry, I had one, twos, fives, and tens. I remember that it wasn't enough of a bell curve. It was actually. Okay, I'm being a math geek here. Oh, we love math. It was more parabolic than bell curve, the how the uh, uh, how you evaluated money, and I didn't want that. So, the I wanted to make sure that the difference between the smallest bill and the largest bill was enough that it was noticeable, but not so much that players felt demoralized if they were suitcasing small stuff and you were suitcasing big stuff. And that so the difference between a, a three and a five is a, is quite a bit. And the difference between the three and a two is okay. And of course, I needed every single, uh, as when you look at the buildings, I wanted to make sure I had enough different combinations of bills that there would be a lot of variance in between games. So the difference between getting a five and a three and a five and a two is actually, it doesn't feel like much, but it is pretty significant. This is a cool menu, not game. And in typical fashion, 
cool mini knock games have really cool minis and some incredible graphic design. Tell us a little bit about who did the graphic design of this and, and those gorgeous miniatures that are on the board. So the art was done uh, by Carl Kapinski, who's ridiculously amazing. Uh, I love Carl Kapinski. I worked the first time I worked with him was on the others. Actually, he did a lot of, uh, he did a lot of the heroes in the others. And that's when I was first exposed to his style. I was like, my God, he's amazing. And so for this game, he worked in oil. Um, which uh, so when you look at the rule book and you look at those paintings, it's like unbelievable. Uh, I know I'm going to get this wrong because normally I work with uh, with Studio McVeigh. I couldn't. I'm not sure if they're the ones who did the the sculpts for this one. I might be wrong, but I mean the common ground here is that David Preddy is the art director and the production director, so he works with amazing sculptors regardless of which team it is. But it's just a small number of teams that uh, that work on this. They're crazy good. This one, I remember that the art direction for this was very tough because everybody in this game is human, mm-hmm. right? It's just it's just kind of big Italian guys in, in suspenders. <laughs> and, like, how do you make them look cool? And they look cool. Their profile, like, how they look with how they look against a uh, strong light, look, not looking at color and detail, their profiles are very unique and striking and cool. I think that's awesome. Uh, the graphic designer is our um, the the guy who works on most of the games I work with. It's a French guy named uh, Mathieu Arlo, uh, who is amazing. I've been working with him since Chaos Ball. I'm very fussy about graphic design, and I'm a pain in the ass for every graphic designer I've ever worked with because uh, I'm a really form over function guy, uh, function over form. Uh, usually, I send him a brief, and I go, "This I want exactly this. Make sure to give me exactly this." And he'll be like, "Yeah, that's nice. I'm going to give you this instead." And it's a thousand times better. He usually, he respects form very much. He usually doesn't change my, the wireframes very much, like the placement of information. But when he makes changes, it works. Nine times out of 10, his idea is way better. I almost wish I could show you like a, the, a side-by-side of my original prototype for the board. Most stuff is in the same places, but he just made it, my version of it looked more cluttered. He took the same information, made the spaces bigger and take up more room and it looked less cluttered. And of course, it looks super thematic. His his choice of font it was great. It was, I love working with him. What about the art style of the cards? Were you going for that fifties kind of look art style? Because that's kind of different too. Yeah, and so that I had a very different idea in mind. Actually, I was um, I was going for something a little closer to movie stills, and then uh, Matthew went for that deco look, and we saw one version of it. I was like, wow, yep, that's it. The prototype I've been playing for, with for months dissolved instantly i'm like nope i'm gonna play with this only now um that's i mean just because he's he's an exceptional talent how many easter eggs of cats are there in the game i don't know you don't know Ooh. <laughs> i don't know there, are you telling me there are easter eggs of cats I, I, I just that's one of the iconic things from the godfather he's sitting there petting that cat Oh, sure. Oh, okay. I thought I, I, I was like, yeah, I, I was lost too, Eric. See what I deal with all the time. I, I don't, sometimes he says stuff. I don't know where he's coming from. I was from like, I was going to, as soon as this was over, I was going to go check out my, uh, I was going to open the board again. Um, <laughs> there are no, there are no Panda Easter eggs in this. I know everybody, uh, they ask that <laughs> this is one of the few games I didn't get to stick a Panda in. I mean, where do you stick a Panda in the Godfather, right? Sorry, spoiler alert. I think I just heard a collective aw from everyone. Before we move on, we do have a special segment that I would like to introduce. This past April, I was invited to come hang out with the Geek and Sundry folks for International Tabletop Day. While I was in Los Angeles, I got the chance to play some games with Rich Summer of the podcast Cardboardcast. Now, if you know Rich, you know that he likes to put in board game themed cocktails. 
Well, Rich had seen the announcement of The Godfather from Simon and said he would love to play that game. It just so happens that I got the game two days before I was to depart to L.A. So I threw the game in the suitcase to kind of surprise him. Well, not kind of. I did surprise him. We got there and said, hey, are you interested in playing this? He got all excited. We played a couple games and we were done. He said, you know, there's actually a cocktail called The Godfather. And when he found out we were interviewing you, Eric, he said, I want to share that with everybody that's listening to the show in case they want to enjoy this drink. So Rich, tell us all about the cocktail, The Godfather. Hello there, friends. It's Rich Summer. I am a friend of the show. I'll call myself that, a friend of Rolling Dice and Taking Names. And when I heard that these guys were going to be covering the Godfather board game uh, as part of Tabletop Showcase, uh, I thought, well, there's got to be got to be a little something you can sip along with that, right? I mean, the game is super good. Super good. You, you may not have gotten to play it yet at the time of this listening, but I can tell you as a... Uh, you know, just an observer who who totally hasn't played the game yet. It's great. Anyway, there is a cocktail that uh, is kind of perfect to have alongside your game of The Godfather. And that is a cocktail called... <clears throat> let me just uh, let me check, check my notes here. Oh, hold on. Should I should have prepared the... Check my notes. This... To drink with The Godfather. It's called The Godfather. There we go. Uh, the Godfather cocktail is from, they think, the 60s or the 70s. No one's really 100% sure where this drink came from. The actual lineage of it has been uh, difficult to impossible to track down. But it's a cocktail that's been around for a bit. Not a super popular cocktail. It's likely you haven't had one. Uh, if you've had a cocktail that is called the Rusty Nail, you've had sort of the predecessor to the Godfather. Uh, it's, it's a cousin to the Rusty Nail. The original recipe, which is listed in the IBA, which is the International Bartenders Association's uh, list of drinks that every bartender should know, the recipe is one part scotch and one part amaretto. Now, if you've never had amaretto, let's see, how to describe it? Sickly sweet with a general overtone of almond? It's a weird liqueur. Italian uh, Di Serrano is the, the usual brand. That's the one that you'll usually see at a bar. It's a very sweet liqueur. And I will tell you that uh, for me, the, that original Godfather, which again is one part scotch, so maybe an ounce and a half of scotch and an ounce and a half of amaretto, poured over ice and gently stirred. That's it. It's not very good. It's not a tasty cocktail. It hasn't aged well. I would, did a little bit of research and found an article by a guy named Adam McDowell, who wrote this about a year ago for the National Post in uh, Canada, the food and drink section. And his article is called Fix My Drink, The Godfather Part Two, in which he talks a lot about how, uh, you know, John Taffer, who's the host of that terrible bar rescue show, uh, names it as his favorite drink, not a shock, uh, and that it had started a little bit of hubbub on Reddit and other places. And people have been trying to figure out a way to improve the Godfather cocktail. And Adam McDowell here kind of came up with his spin on uh, using all those ideas and everything of what he calls the Godfather Part Two. So the cocktail I'm actually going to introduce to you, the one that I that I can kind of stand near, is the Godfather Part Two. And here's what Adam says to do: It's two ounces of blended scotch. I would go very run of the mill blended scotch here, a Johnny Walker 
you know, black label. It does not have to be anything fancy because you're about to gum it up with what he calls a generous half ounce of amaretto. Now, if you're doing your math, that is four parts scotch to one part amaretto. Quite a different ratio. And it's getting closer to what I can (laughs) tolerate. It's still going to be fairly sweet, which is why he then goes on to say an optional one to three dashes of bitters. I would err toward two or three dashes of bitters. That bitter is going to help to cut down on the the real super sickly saccharine sweet uh, alliteration uh, nature of The Godfather. Uh, And then he recommends to squeeze a little lemon peel over the top just to get that oil, you know, take get a get a, a vegetable peeler, peel off just the rind of the lemon, leaving as little pith on there as possible, the white stuff. And you just squeeze it over the drink a few times so the oil comes out of that skin and you can dump the skin in the trash. You don't need to drop it in the drink. And that's kind of it. So one more time, it's two ounces of blended scotch, one half ounce of amaretto. One to three dashes of bitters. Stir that over ice. Strain it over ice. You're going to want all that ice. And the reason for it is it's going to dilute the drink in a good way. Um, Again, that's going to help to cut down on some of that sweetness. I would say you might even throw a little splash of soda water on the final product. It worked for me. It made it a a little more enjoyable. And I'd also say if you want to go thematic style on this, Godfather style, uh, maybe um, sub out. Uh, the lemon and replace it with a little orange peel. Because, you know, in the movie, the the guy with the orange all the time, whenever there's oranges, someone's going to die. It's just like The Godfather. Anyway, there it is. The Godfather Part 2. Perfect cocktail to enjoy alongside your play of the new Godfather game from Simon. Please enjoy. And uh, thank you, Marty and Tony, for having me. Goodbye. you so much rich and be sure to check out his show called the cardboard cast which is a live show he puts on every so often because it's not a regular show you just kind of have to be following him on twitter and all of a sudden something will pop up and go Boop, hey i'm getting ready to do a show so uh check him out and we wanted to make sure that we were towards the end of this so that people wouldn't run and start drinking the cocktails and just totally miss all this great stuff <laughs> great stuff from eric so, Eric, I do have to ask, this is based on the first movie. Any That's right. plans for doing sequels? Godfathers 2 and 3? Uh, he's like, uh, for those of you who can't see, he's stroking the beard while he's saying that. So, I don't know, honestly. Um, mm. I mean, I'm satisfied with the game. I love the game as it is. Um, I knew from the get-go this was not going to be a Kickstarter game. It was going to be designed for retail. So, I love making games for Kickstarter, but I had to relearn how to make games that are hermetically sealed and uh, and and not built for expansions. So this is a complete end-to-end experience. Of course, there's enough to the game that I'm sure there could be expansion to it. The Godfather 2 is a natural way to go, um, as the second of only two Godfather movies ever made. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that. That could be a way to go. I mean, I'll never say never, but at this point, I'm very satisfied with the game as it is. Did you achieve, Eric, what you set out to when, when this thing is all wrapped up, pretty bow on it? Uh, yeah, I was super proud. I, I know that. So it's always a mixed bag at, when I'm finished uh, working on the game. And as we speak, I just tur- uh, like right now, I just turned in uh, Rising Sun like a couple weeks ago. At the time we turn a game in and it goes, uh, the print files go to the printer. 
I am at the same time I'm elated because I'm so proud of the work we've done, but I'm also so sick of the game. I never want to see it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at that point right now. I never, I don't want to play Rising Sun. I don't even look at the game for like a, quite a while. And I don't do that. I actually leave the game alone. I don't touch it. I mean, with Godfather, I finished Godfather like, I, wow, nine months ago, 10 months ago. We actually waited a while between, uh, there were several months of just waiting uh, so we could time it right for the anniversary. Uh, now that I haven't played the game in like nine months, I'm itching to play it again. Uh, and I played uh, I played it at the Expo several times. Like just my designer brain is off and I'm just playing as a player and enjoying it. And yes, I love the game. I'm, I, I will play that over and over. It's right exactly my speed. Yes, I was proud of it at the time. And now I just love the game as a game. Well, now as you move into this role of uh, director of game design at CMON, will you still be wearing your designer hat as often? Or are you kind of replacing that and putting it on as a director and helping to manage other game designs or in CMON? Because we can't go too long without an Eric Lane design board game. Yeah, absolutely. So Yes, of course I will be designing games. It's my primary responsibility. I couldn't not design games. That's crazy. One of the reasons I was really excited about to take this position was I've checked almost every box on my bucket list. I've done all the games. Like I've done most of the licenses I want to do. I've done most of the games I want to do. And I don't, I don't want to make a ton of games every year. I want to make a, a very small handful of games mm-hmm. and just really pour everything into it and also and be involved in more of the steps uh, more in the subs of production and graphics, uh, just get deeper into every aspect of it. I have, like, I'm currently working on three games right now for the next year and a half. So that you will definitely see those, including a uh, theoretical spiritual successor to Rising Sun, right? That's a, I'm definitely working on it. Um, I am going to be also supervising the other designs at CMON. And sometimes, like in the case of Ice and Fire, I actually do get involved enough in the game to actually come on as a designer. So... My job is to oversee the catalog, to oversee everything that we're doing, not necessarily as a designer, but sometimes as a mentor or as a, a, as a well, as a director, somebody who's giving guidance to our team. Um, I won't be, I mean, we're not putting my name on every box, but like uh, some of the games are still made by outside designers. And I really enjoy that. I like working on other people's games. I'll have my hands to some degree in almost everything we do. Well, I'm still waiting for your fighting game. Oh, I was going to ask that, but I didn't know if we could touch on that. <laughs> I remember the last time you were on the show, you loved video fighting video games. I keep waiting for, is Eric ever going to design a fighter ga- a game based on the video game fighters, like uh, st- uh, Street Fighters? I, I know like we were, the last time you were on, Eric, we were like, we, we dropped that rank ammonia. We had so much excitement with that. And you said you've checked off everything on your bucket list just now. And I'm, that's why I'm sitting up in the chair. I'm saying, oh, boy. <laughs> Well, I mean, no comment. But <laughs> oh, oh, that's what you said last time. Come on, man. It's been a year. I know. But, dude, a lot of these games take, like, a lot of these games take a long time. So remember that between now and when Godfather started, that was two years. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Are all your games at this point that you'd be designing will be coming out uh, through CMON, or do you have the leeway to do stuff that might be published by somebody else? Uh, everything I do from this point on is all for CMON. The reason they made me like uh, director of game design is because this kind of feels like my sandbox, right? Like this is what you what you see coming out from CMON is all the games I want to make. Like I, I'm not really interested in spamming out games anymore. Like I, 
those days are behind me. I want to do fewer games and much, much, much more focus. For me, fewer games means one and a half to two games a year. <laughs> so that's still, I mean, that's still a fair amount. And I'm still, I mean, I'm also really enjoying just having a having a hand in all these other super cool games that are coming out. Like I'm currently supervising four games that are done by our staff. Every one of them, like, I mean, they'll be coming out in the next year and a half. They're so exciting. Like, it's cool to see our team grow. You'll see the first of their the fruits of their labor, I guess, in early 2018. I think. So, so Tony, you have it here. We have it recorded. He said at CMON, he can make all the games that he wants to make. Street Fighter game. There it is, right here. There it is. It's coming. In all honesty, Eric, please don't be a stranger. We know you're a world away, and it'll probably be harder for you to get over here, especially dealing with jet lag and all that other good stuff. But we, we hope we get to see you. I know you'll be at the big cons, but man. I, be at, he'll be at Gen Con. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's true. Like, I think uh, a lot of my convention friends may not notice the difference because I am doing – I'm still doing Gen Con. I will be doing – I'll be doing BGG. I'll be doing Gamma. I'll, uh, I'm doing Dice Tower this con this year. I love that show. Mm-hmm. I'll do uh, – I'm still doing Essen, which I know is, a, is not exactly in the States. But I do the shows I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still going to be – I mean, uh, both my wife and I have family here in North America. So, like, we are definitely going to be traveling, uh, coming back to see uh, to see friends and family. So, you guys probably won't notice a huge amount of difference except for exactly, as Tony said, the jet lag. You'll probably just be more <laughs> tired all the time. Hey, the, the nice thing about traveling, though, is you'll have ambassador status in no time at all. You'll be dry, uh, flying first class to everywhere. Oh, that sounds good. So you, everybody, you guys heard that, right? Confirmed. Marty said first class for Eric. There you go. Done. Uh, hey, I'm, well, you'll have enough miles for it, right? I mean, I mean. Uh, dude, I already have enough miles for that. Like, I, oh, okay. I, I travel a lot. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, remember, from here to Singapore is like 18,000 miles or something like that. Wow. So how far is Singapore to Hawaii? How many hours of flight? I would guess. I mean, you can't do it in a single flight. So oh. it's probably, it'll probably be about 18 hours or so. If you, when you go to Essen, you'll probably be going. The other way. I'll be going. The other west. way. Yeah. That's probably actually yeah. closer for you. It's some. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's about a 13 hour flight. See, I was hoping that we could figure out Simon Expo in Hawaii to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, kids. Confirmed. Tony's uh, Simon Expo in Hawaii, <laughs> run by Tony. Okay, nice. I'll do that. You show. I'm there. Okay, well, I, that's one way to get my wife. Oh, it's your show. You're responsible. Oh. Get started. Okay, that'll be a short meetup of rolling dice and taking name fans. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, uh, make sure to check out Eric at, at your favorite local con. The next one he'll be coming up at is the Dice Tower Con, followed by Gen Con. And, and Eric is very active on social media. And if you want to follow him where he drops little hints to his projects, like I remember this one, Eric. I remember you calling this Project Suitcase. Mm-hmm. Oh, and right. I had no clue what it was. And now it just... And in fact, when I saw this game came out and I saw the suitcase and went... That's exactly what he was referring to with this one. So if you want to maybe get on the inside of some of the games he may be working on through these little secret words and everything, where can they follow you and find you, Eric? Uh, I'm on Twitter most of the time. What am I? I'm Eric 
underscore Lang, I think it is. I think it's Eric underscore. I think last time you were on the show, you couldn't remember what your handle was, but I think it was Eric underscore Lang. It's like your phone number. You don't Twitter yourself, right? <laughs> um, exactly. Well, I do because that's the only way I get any Twitters, but you know, that's... that's <laughs> wow. That's so not true. <laughs> I talk to myself. Hey, Marty, how you doing? I'm pretty much... It's just Twitter. Um, I, I don't... I mean, Facebook, I reserve for just friends and I don't, I don't really have public pages, so... Yep. And I use I don't have a I used to have a blog, but I don't I don't blog much anymore because I hold myself to a ridiculous standard for writing, and my critical skills are way higher than my writing skills. So I hate everything I write. <laughs> <laughs> so it just doesn't work out. So there it is, The Godfather, which will be hitting retail in in July again. You've heard from the designer Eric Lang. Make sure to go check out the other content from the Tabletop Showcase, including how to play this game, thematically how this game works, gameplay overviews and reviews. Eric, thank. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a joy and pleasure to have you on. And I can't wait to hear about the next game that you're going to be coming on this show to talk about at some point in the future. Oh, thanks, Marty. My pleasure. You will definitely hear from me again. Woohoo! Take care, Eric. All right. Have a good night, guys. While the insert for The Godfather is top-notch, Not all CMON games are that way, so if you head over to thebrokentoken.com, you can definitely pick up probably one of their best inserts ever designed, and that is for Eric Lane's other incredible game, Blood Rage. That insert alone allows the setup and storage so much better. You're not going to have those miniatures broken or anything like that. They snap right in there. Easy to pull out. Easy to find what you need to do a very quick setup. So be sure to go check out the other great inserts at thebrokentoken.com. With the con season upon us, that means lots of new games going to be coming out. And that includes our good friends over at Portal Games, who are going to be coming out with an expansion to 51st State Scavengers, which Tony and I are very excited about, plus a 4X card game called Alien Artifacts that you'll definitely want to check out. But they've also got a wonderful catalog of games, and you can go find out more from them on their website at portalgames.pl and follow them on YouTube, where Ignacy Chevychek posts weekly videos of what's going on behind the scenes at the offices of Portal Games. Once again, Eric, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Rolling Dice, taking names is in your debt. You made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And, and we and we accepted. Hey, I've used it twice. Hey, I know. You know how many times I've heard that? Every other show on Tabletop Showcase should interject that at least once. I, that could be kind of like maybe a drinking game or something. If you go <laughs> and listen to all the shows, and every time they did an offer you can't refuse, you take a shot. Or better yet, you know, you oh, I don't know. Or what you else? Or, or like, uh, what's the other big one? Oh, uh, uh, Eric actually said this one. Uh, leave the gun, take the cannolis. There you go. Or sleeping with the fishes. There's some quotable quotes from the Godfather. Tony, so we got to hear Eric talk about the game. You and I have played the game several times. And I must say, it's a pretty darn good game. I tell you, if people like games that kind of merge uh, several different types of genres together, this is it. Because it has a little bit of the worker placement, a little bit of the resource management, a little bit of the area control, a little bit of the bluffing because you're hiding stuff in your suitcase. But here's the thing, Tony, it just works. It works really well together. It's not like you tried to stuff in something that wasn't going to be, that doesn't fit with the rest of the game. Oh, and the fact that, like I said in the interview, 
our, my friends and everybody knows who's listened to our show, they really enjoyed, they, they picked it up real quick. They loved the strategy, but it wasn't so, di- it wasn't one of those hard Euro-y type games that you got to sit there and really noodle on. I think you threw Eric for a loop when you said that, because he's like, oh, I wasn't expecting uh, like casual gamers to like it, but that's good. I mean, no, but, now, but now you say your your friends are casual gamers. I mean, they play a lot of games with you, though, don't they? But they're just not heavy games, right? I know better than to break out the the heavy. I, I will probably, the worker placement engines that we've, worker placement engines, what the frick was that? Anyway. Cool, I no. thought I was going to have to bleep you there for a second. Holy cow, I was getting ready to hit the dump button. I know. No, 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 no. So I'm, I'm not going to pull, pull out 54 state and things like that here, but they really enjoyed it. They loved the theme. I mean, I, I have a picture waiting of, we had everybody in the Hudson. It was hilarious. At the very end of our game, we had a, all of them out there. I, I sent it to you in a text. I really, really like this game. Yeah. And again, what is so cool is you don't have to know The Godfather. You don't have to be a fan of The Godfather because it doesn't follow the movie. The characters, it's not the main characters of the movie. It's just a mob game. That's pretty much it is mimicking the idea of the the mob working through uh, New York and trying to control areas. So don't let the theme scare you off. It's like, well, I'm not a big fan of the movie or don't know it because I think you can still enjoy it. In episode 120, we mentioned that you and I have seen both of the episodes or I mean, both of the episodes, both of the movies. Or I know there's three. There's part three. I haven't gotten to that one yet. But did you know, and this was pointed out to me, I didn't recognize this. Every time there is a citrus fruit involved. Somebody gets whacked. My son, Travis, who is big into movies, had told me that. But when I watched it, I didn't look for that. Did you look for it? After it was told to me, I started watching it. And sure enough, it was like like when, when Don Corleone is in his citrus grove. We all know what happens to him there. That's right. Yeah. And the first time that he visits the citrus stand, yep. we all know what happens there. Yep. And then in number two, you see um, well, can Michael. I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Uh, where was the citrus with uh, Sonny when he was in the car going through the uh, gate on the road? Was there citrus somewhere before that? I can't remember if he picked one up. I, I don't remember. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. I mean, because I'm going to watch it again specifically for that to see how many how cool that is. I just I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, they're right. There's no uh, boom. Bullets are flying. So it just goes. <laughs> what? What? It, it, but boom, bullets are flying. Hey, he's got he's got an orange. Oh no, everybody duck, duck, <laughs> duck. Put the tangerine down. Don't do it. Oh my god, these can these these oranges are defective. Not cans from the movie. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, from the truck. <laughs> he hates the lemons. It's one of those games. Quality production is top notch as as every Simon game is. And I'm I'm really digging this game. It's it's definitely gonna be in the collection for a while. I do not see it gathering dust. Like I said, it just really fills in, uh, you know, it, it has a lot of mechanics to it that people are going to like. Uh, again, the, the idea of that of a worker, and you, you brought this up in the uh, interview, Tony, you could put a worker, use them, but then somebody could play a card where that worker is basically killed, you know, put into the Hudson, which opens up that spot for somebody to take advantage of later on. But that's one thing Eric said. I mean, you don't lose. And I think that is a key, key element to that game. And we talked about it. I mean, it's just one of those really nice features that you don't feel like you're going after people. Exactly. Except extortion's pretty rough. Extortion is a card where basically you get to take some money out of their suitcase. Whoo. 
that one can hurt, but it's an expensive one to do. So when this game comes out, and again, continue to watch all the content on Tabletop Showcase. Uh, you're going to see how to play the game. You're going to be able to see uh, the game played uh, in action with the multiple player counts, especially from Matt Evans from Board Game uh, Replay. Uh, go check out uh, Chaz's content, what he's going to be uh, doing uh, with this game. So this game's going to be coming out in late July uh, in your stores. It should be uh, online and in your stores uh, available to you. It should be easy to get. And what's nice, Tony, this was not a Kickstarter. Unlike many of the CMON games, there's no, hey, the backers get it first. When does it come to retail? Everybody's going to be able to get it the same day. Thanks to Eric for dropping by the show. Really do appreciate it. And Marty, where can people find more episodes of Rolling Dice and Taking Names? If you want to listen to more of our episodes, go to check out our website at RollDiceTakeNames.com. Or if you want to spell out the full name, you could do RollingDiceAndTakingNames.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you want to interact with us on social media, please follow us on Twitter at Dyson Names, Instagram Dyson Names, on Facebook, Roll Dice Tech Names, and come join our BGG Guild at 1589, where Tony puts up some incredible polls week after week, ranging anywhere from games to food. But Tony, we have saved almost the best for last because the best was actually interviewing Eric. Tony, Tabletop Showcase is going to be giving away three copies of The Godfather to some lucky winners. Really? Three? Three. Just count them. One, two, three. We're going to get three copies out there. Now, is, is it going to be a difficult contest like I like to have everybody do, like guess how much you know the opening weekend of Wonder Woman's going to be? Or, <laughs> is, or is it going to be having to go out and rank the various games that we need to be able to review? Is it going to be as difficult as a typical rolling dice and taking names contest? The answer is no. It's going to be a very simple contest. And if you want to, you can go check out our link on our blog post for this episode or go to the tabletopshowcase.com website where there'll be a link there for for entering the contest and all you're going to do is you're going to enter in a special code word and that code word is shh everybody listen showcase s-h-o-w-c-a-s-e is the code word it is case insensitive so you can caps it or lowercase it however you want and again you can go find that on our blog post at roll dice tech names or at the website table shop it's not table shop tony no Actually, Table Shop Top Case might have been good. Yeah, but no, but it's Tabletop Showcase, Showcase being the magic word. And the contest will be closing on June 30th, 2017. And we'll be picking a winner right after that. And the prizes will ship July 14th, which is right before they come out in retail. So you can get your copy early. You know, that July 14th date, Marty, I don't know. I mean, sometimes things can happen. So, but... We're shooting for July 14th. Let's, let's, let's be very clear on that. That's when we were told they're going to go out. Yeah, that has nothing to do with us. If they don't go out by then, hey, uh, go blame. Uh, who can we blame? Um, Rodney. Rodney. Rodney's always a good person to blame. I, I like that. So anyway, once again, that is Showcase. Is this code name, code word. I think we've said it enough, but that's okay. Showcase. It's not Suitcase. It's Showcase. It's not Suitcase. <laughs> Here we go. Somebody's going to write suitcase. Well, that's not my problem because we've obviously said the code word is <laughs> showcase. And you can find the link to either on our website or on the Tabletop Showcase website. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. All right. And this does close on June the 30th. So there's not a lot of time. I mean, when this show drops, we're talking eight 
days, people. Move it. Let's go. Go win a copy of The Godfather from Eric Lang. Well, Marty, that was a great show. So I think it is time to keep rolling dice and taking names. Thanks for listening to Rolling Dice and Taking Names. Remember to check out the other great content from Tabletop Showcase on tabletopshowcase.com and come back next episode when we share our adventures from Origins and the Rocky Mountain Gaming Vacation. All right, Marty. So after five and a half, six hours of watching Godfather movies to prepare for this interview, do you know what I learned the most? Fruit is bad for your health. Oh boy, lots of games being announced and coming out at these upcoming conventions and you'll want to go pre-order your copy from funagain.com where if you're a member, your pre-order is going to have a little bit more of a discount and you can earn points to actually increase the discounts that you'll have through their membership. Also remember, anything over $100 is free shipping and when you order, please use our affiliate code RDTN. Go check them out at funagain.com. <laughs>